gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 20, the review segment for April 25th. It's uh, just me and David today, but that's fine, uh, right? That's it better than fine. <laughs> <laughs> the duo of, uh, it's going to be quite miserable, I'm sure. No, actually, we, we, we like the movies that we're talking about today, so that's, that's a... I think, I think we do. That's a good thing. We're not going to be stewing. We'll, we won't piss you off too much today. Um... We're going to be talking about we'll two. Way, yeah, we'll, sure. we'll definitely find a way, of course, <laughs> naturally. Um, two films that come out this weekend. Uh, the first is Locke with Tom Hardy. This is a film by Stephen Knight, um, who wrote such films as Dirty Pretty Things, a movie I love, and Eastern Promises. We're also going to review Blue Ruin, a film that's been making the festival circuit for for some time now and is finally hitting VOD and theaters this weekend and that's from uh, Jeremy Saulnier 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 I don't know. Uh, I, I like looks, to French it up. It I looks like a little French. Um, but we'll get to Blue Room. We're going to start with Stephen Knight's Locke. Uh, and as I mentioned, Stephen Knight, uh, mostly a writer, has dabbled in directing with uh, this Jason Statham movie he did last year. He, he directed several episodes of a TV show he created way back in the 90s, how he got his start called The Detectives. Actually, something I didn't know about Stephen Knight uh, is that he created Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? He did indeed. The original um, British The original TV British version. version, which doesn't have a lot to do with the films that he writes. Uh, but uh, may- maybe so sure. it does. I mean I think he uh, he is sort of an expert of putting sedentary men in or people really in crisis. <laughs> that's that's uh, because, true. And and Locke also is nothing if not, you know, the movie of a man in the hot seat for eighty five minutes reaching on his lifelines. And and where you can feel the manufactured elements metaphor. in a way. I mean uh, both Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Locke are very much, yeah, the, the hot seat, but where you can see the hot seat, where it's almost like a Saul trap in a way. Um, so why don't you set this film up a little bit for us? Sure. Well, Locke, as uh, you may have heard if you've heard anything about the film, uh, stars Tom Hardy as a man and the entire film, uh, more or less. I'd like to leave that somewhat open-ended so as not to uh, give you too precise an idea as to where it goes. It takes place in his car. Um, is movie opens. The first shot is him getting in his car. He is a uh, sort of a well-off, higher-ranking construction worker type who is foreman. About he's the to, foreman of, a, he's of a, foreman. an operation. He's about to oversee the biggest concrete pour in uh, Europeans Europe's civilian history uh, and or corporate history, not nuclear or military, as they specify. Uh, but he is driving away from the job because, uh, despite being a seemingly happily married man with a son who is big into football. Uh, he had his, uh, a woman that he slept with exactly one time in an incident that he would much rather forget is in labor with his bastard child, uh, about 90 minutes away in London. And she's a little nutty. And she's, she's a bit, she's a bit nutty. And, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, she's, she's just sort she's of very alone in the world and yes. she found a connection in him and she's been dwelling on him much more than he has been dwelling but on her. We never, as with everybody else in the film, we, we never see these people. The only person we see, uh, and this is not much of a spoiler is Locke himself talking to them via the, his phone connected to Bluetooth hands-free legal, 
uh, in the car as he drives along M- the M5 towards London and juggles an increasingly stressful evening. And this really is the rare thriller that's sort of motivated more by stress than it is speed. And I think that's part of what makes it so relatable is I, I think – Everyone has had, maybe not to this sort of dramatic degree, but a day like this where it feels like the world that they built for themselves is sort of crashing down around them. But on one line, he has, uh, you know, the underling who he's turned this massive job to at the risk of Locke's own job. He's got his wife who he is now told about uh, his dalliance. And then he's got the hospital where his mistress is giving birth. And uh, there are four or five different people he's calling. And plus he has... Uh, a bastard himself whose own father mistreated him, Locke is is particularly determined to get to the hospital and be there for the kid in a way that his father never was for him. Uh, and he, as he huffs cough syrup, begins to sort of uh, in the rearview mirror have a conversation with his uh, dark passenger of a father <laughs> who sits in the, the back seat. Again, it does not materialize in any sort of visible way. but A very uh, theatrical device. Yes, yes. Uh, so there, there are a lot of things going on with Locke, and and so where, where, when did you see this film? You saw this like right before. Sundance, I saw it right before Sundance, before. and then I actually just saw it again to review last week, and uh, it played, uh, it played even stronger for me the second time around. That I was a bit more attuned to what it was going to be doing. Oh, that brings and, me such relief because I will remember um, asking you about the film before catching it at Sundance and you were kind of cooler on it, I think. And, uh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, like, there, I, I, I was a little bit more uh, agreeable to some of the stuff the film was doing and appreciated it more. As an, it really feels like a cross between uh, Gravity and Abbas, like the films of Abbas Kurosami, especially 10, which are, uh, you know, so attuned to cars as this sort of private yet public space and but it really i mean this is there's the human element to its suspense as i mentioned sort of the stress of it that i find so much more uh palpable than something like gravity which is uh you know hard to really put yourself in quite the same way but um you know there's there's a lot of talk in the movie uh, full stop there's a lot of talk in the movie but there's also <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of like metaphors he's talking a lot about uh, that are very on the nose. He's talking a lot about you know concrete and like putting bad concrete into the base of a building uh, and the building cracking around it. And it's sort of like you know he has he's a very solid guy and he has this solid life and he made one mistake and now this one mistake that he made on one lonely night is going to cost him uh, his entire life. But the metaphors, I think, uh, the second time I saw it, I was able to sort of excuse some of the the more screenwriterly bits of it because I feel as if Locke has been preparing for maybe a not a a night quite this stressful but to deal with the situation for a few months now and has been endlessly rehearsing uh, Mm -hmm. his rationales and justifications Mm -hmm. for these things in his head. Um, And I think, you know, as it hits his wife like a truck, but I think part of his strange Zen-like calm in the movie is because he has uh, had so much time to process this. Right. He is and, a well-organized man, as we can tell from his binders and his right. – he's able to talk someone through the biggest concrete pour in all of Europe uh, from his car. He doesn't need to see anything. He just knows it. So, yeah, you're, you're, I think you're on point there saying that yeah. this is not necessarily a rehearsed conversation, but he is a man with a plan at all times. And, and um, I think it's a very hu- – I mean I, I really appreciated how the stakes remain resolutely human throughout yeah. I mean, it's, and in, in a relatable way, I mean, it's not – you think of other films of this nature. There aren't many, but these sort of confined single-person films, I don't know, like, like Buried with uh, Ryan Reynolds, which um, 
quickly goes yeah, I mean, off the rails. Like, and... Yeah, I mean, they very they go off the rails, and I think that um, Stephen Knight uh, he makes a few concessions to make sure that things are are interesting and accessible enough. But I think for the most part, he has a conviction in sort of the 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 stakes of of this man's life. That's enough for this movie. It doesn't need to go into anything ridiculous or or supernatural. I mean, it's it's just. A guy – it's just like a little self-contained morality play on wheels about a guy who um, is wrestling with being defined by the worst thing that he's done. And if – you know, it, there's a line that his wife says in the movie where she says the difference between once and never as far as like doing a mm. bad thing is uh, the difference between good and bad. And, and it's a question that the movie really wrestles with and I think is, uh, is cautious not to jump to any sort of uh, too broad conclusion on the matter and is part of what makes it so interesting. I um I love your point about the metaphors. I mean, they are obvious. They can be on the nose. But sometimes I like seeing the writer's hand and the director's hand a little bit. Um, I think that's what theater is all about and how this movie kind of blends theater and film and doesn't worry about how those two mediums need to be distinct. Um, I, I go see a play because... A writer doesn't have to be clever, but he can set things up that seem obvious and we anticipate them. I mean, that's Chekhov's gun in a way. Um, And while this movie doesn't have anything that overly dramatic, um, we can certainly, we can see Stephen Knight at work and I can appreciate that. And same with the filmmaking. Um, as, As realistic as this movie is, I mean, they shot it on real roads and they, you know, this is, and they, they did the, um, they shot it like a play, basically, uh, where they would go and do the drive every night. And I think that you can really tell. I mean, these seem like real environments. The ver- verisimilitude is there. And yet it's heightened. It's it's not realistic because we're contained in here. And all the dialogue is kind of happening perfectly. Or as you suggested, maybe it's happening perfectly in the beginning because Locke feels like he has this under control. Like he has a line for every response that he's going to get. Um, and that slowly starts to slip away. Um, but again, the filmmaking is, you know, we, we know we're in a film. We, we're very aware that we're going to be in this car the whole time and the angles are going to be chosen by someone outside of this drama. It's not trying to go for realism necessarily, even though the world is very real. And there's, there's something about that that really heightens the drama for me. It makes it more intense. Um, it's why I think it, the movie gets away with Tom Hardy talking to the ghost presence of his father at some point. Why we yeah. think a movie or a play like Hamlet works. It feels very human to to reflect in that way and to speak out loud to something that is not there. It's not silly, but... Uh, and while Knight isn't... I mean, he's, he doesn't have too much freedom to do interesting things with the camera. It's really uh, established this as something that needed to be told via a film rather than staged on uh, a stage. Um, there is... There, there are interesting things, especially as Locke sort of loses a little bit of himself as he goes on, uh, where his face was shot. You know, the windshield is is almost a second character in this movie, and right. the reflections over it, and Locke's face sort of begins to be trans uh, transposed over the highway, and uh, his identity is sort of seeping through uh, the windshield and becoming sort of diffused with the world around him. And I think. Um, and this is a guy, as you said, is very tightly controlled, and you can sort of very palpably understand why this is uh, important for Locke. And I think it's a really effective, if somewhat subtle, way of doing it with uh, the tools that were available. Well, I, I think it justifies him. itself as a film because of 
how Knight plays with editing and he'll go to the open road every once in a while or show us the perspective of Locke driving and this kind of mesmerizing quality of the lights passing you just being on this long drive. I don't think you could capture that on stage. I also like being really close to Tom Hardy in these moments. Like he's really sick and, you know, he's, as you said, he's kicking back cough medicine and that sort of thing. Just and he's great. Dripping his, snot out of his He nose. has a Welsh, like a very strong Welsh accent in this movie, which is not his natural accent. It's an affect put on for the performance. And it really, uh, I think in my review, I said that it sounded like uh, Mrs. Doubtfire being filtered through the Bane mask. I mean, it's. It, I, uh, like, I find it very soothing. It's like, it has it this like musical soothing. quality. It is very, I, couldn't agree more and there is – I saw – when I saw the film again, I saw it at like a 10 a.m. screening and I knew sort of going in that this was going to be a relaxing experience as stress, in some respects as stressful as the movie can be uh, in part because of how sort of centered he is with that, with that voice. But at the same time, it is uh, yeah, distracting whatever. It is an interesting choice worth noting at the very least. I mean it's in such stark contrast to everyone he seems to talk to on the phone who – you know, because we don't get to see them, I think they have an abundance of personality, whether it's his kids or his wife who's just sobbing over the phone or this hysterical woman that's fallen in love with him or, or his, his his pals who are trying to make this poor happen on time. His hysterical and, employee who sounds exactly like Chris O'Dowd. Yes, I thought it was Chris O'Dowd too. It is not. I believe it's this guy, Tom Holland. But uh, yeah, he sounds just like Chris O'Dowd and uh, him like getting drunk on the phone is very funny. Um, so lock. <laughs> See it. It's a lock. Here in my car, I feel safest of all. I can lock on my doors. It's the only way to live in cars. Here in my car, I can So I just saw Blue Ruin, um, you know, hours before we are having this conversation. And... This is a film that has been making the rounds at festivals, as I mentioned, um, since Cannes. I've missed it so many times. I first missed it at Cannes 2013, and then I missed it at um, Toronto, which I didn't go to, and then I missed it at New York Film Festival, and I missed it at Sundance again this year, and I've missed this movie so many times, and um, at every festival, people seem to be losing their minds for it. Uh, this is really just catching people either off guard, or it's it's doing something with a genre that people haven't, or were not expecting. Um, basically, what this film, it's a revenge thriller. Uh, this is, again, from writer-director Jeremy Saulnier, um, and stars this guy, Macon Blair, as Dwight. Um, and when we pick up with him in the beginning of the film, he is just mangy. He has a huge beard. He's living out of his car, which kind of looks like the blue Caprice car. I don't know if I don't I imagine that's not on purpose, but um, I don't, I don't he, think so. No, no, no. He has just been informed that a man who has committed a crime against his family. I don't think it's really clear in the beginning. Those are reveals down the road what exactly happened. But someone who has crossed his family and done something horrible has just been released from prison. And um, this makes him lose his mind even more than he was already. Um, and he goes to kill this guy. And this does not sit well with the family of the guy he kills, this family that just welcomed back um, this guy from prison. And it's kind of a Hatfields-McCoy type situation. Like, the, the things really erupt, violence, and uh, Dwight is 
incited to commit more acts of violence, and their family is incited to commit more uh, acts of violence against Dwight and his family members. And it's a big kerfuffle of blood. David, what did you think of Blue Room? <laughs> I think Blue Room is excellent. I, I unfortunately, my comments are probably going to trend towards the the macro and generic because I haven't seen the movie in about seven months. But uh, I'll try I, and I'll try and <laughs> dig up details from your memory. I I loved it. Uh, at the time, and it has uh, settled very nicely in my memory. I'm actually really eager to see it again. I think um, there's such an incredible... I mean, Jeremy Saulnier's only feature that he directed before this was a movie called uh, Murder Party? Yes, Murder Party. There's not more to the title, just Murder Party, right. But he's he's also a very accomplished cinematographer who's done uh, really impressive work on a number of micro-budget indies like Sepian Hill is a beautiful film. Right. And uh, and I used to be darker. And he has such a command over his craft that there's a sequence. I mean, I think the movie is sort of arresting um, from the very beginning. But there's a sequence about 20 minutes in or so where uh, Dwight, who Macon Blair, I mean, looks like a hobo Joe Latrulio here. It's uh, I I think this whole movie (laughs) plays like a Todd Salance revenge movie. uh, Dwight Uh, looks like a Todd Todd Salance. Salance, uh, Maybe, but uh, maybe in terms of some of the characterizations, but uh, the the way the movie moves and um, how sort of immaculately immaculately comes together is is far outclasses anything Todd Salance is capable of. But um, within especially the just the fluidity of it. But there's a scene anyway where he uh, holds up in his sister's house and defends it in a sort of adult harrowing version of Home Alone Mm -hmm. from these home invaders. And like, you know, within the first half hour of the movie that you were watching some like very upper tier filmmaking because from the most sort of, because at this point you still only have so much story. And even with the meager ingredients that you've been provided to that point, it's absolutely breathless what, uh, how this cuts together and what, he does with it and how in tune the performances are with uh, the action that's happening. And, and there's, it's the rare film that you can really you get that sense of confidence so early, um, especially when you know very little about the filmmakers going in and have no reason to be prepared for that sort of thing. And you can just sort of give yourself over to it. And the movie never does anything to betray that. As it goes on, it just gets stronger and stronger. Um, it, it understands the weight of violence both in the real world but also, I'd say even more crucially to the movie, uh, violence cinematically. It understands that having constant waves of gunfire and, and, and having people blown apart um, for minor infractions whatever dilutes the power that simply having a gun on screen and putting people in these positions can have. And so uh, every – confrontation is imbued with such a weight and and i mean it's really thick with this with this atmosphere that just like two guys one of them in the trunk of a car and one of them standing with a gun nearby or um you know people like everything is just has such a like this density of meaning to it that um that never abates and uh, I, i mean i think that this is really one of the major sort of american discoveries of uh of i guess this last year or this year whatever year it's well. It's this year. It's finally coming out this year. We're qualifying it as a, a 2014 film. I think um, you know the power of an anamorphic image. It's been a while since I've seen a film where just like having widescreen images and having worthwhile landscapes or interiors to capture has really been um, so appreciated or, or so well composed. I, I agree with you that there's a lot of gravity in these scenes where. He's just holding a gun, or he doesn't really want to kill anyone, but he feels driven 
to kill and take revenge. Um, this is the, the revenge here is like pulling teeth for Dwight. Uh, he does, yeah, he's not running actions. out the door and just chasing people because he deserves to take this revenge. And it's not it's not like straw dogs. It's funny because you mentioned Home Alone in this instance, and it's much more Home Alone like than it would be something like straw dogs where. Um, people seem really certain that they want to take that revenge. Here, it's like a frightened child. He just doesn't know what to do necessarily when these guys are coming in and barging through the house, and yet he he, he knows he has to take some sort of action. Um, I mean, he's kind of a revenge savant. And I mean, <laughs> there is a very sort of savant-like quality to his whole performance because he's so sort of uncommunicative. He has a lot of difficulty, um, you know, because of the things that have happened to his life and and where he what he's been up to for a while i mean he um is not really much of a people person and he does take to um setting traps for people very well and i think he struggles a little bit more with the violence as the movie goes on but at the same time uh i mean there wouldn't be a movie without his gifts in that regard and he wouldn't be the interesting character that he is without them but at the same time it's still uh within the rules that it sets very believable you understand you believe in the actions that he takes you believe in the failures that he um you know that he encounters uh his limitations the scale of the violence i mean it gets there is sort of like a climactic shootout um but even even uh when the bullets start to fly it still feels um uh, like a human, a human scale. Which well, every every bullet that's block. fired gets a few, you know, has breathing room between it. Even mm. in the final shootout that you mentioned, this isn't just like a shower of bullets. This is like each bullet counts. Each bullet means something to the and, future. Uh, here. And what I, I love the emphasis um, that Jeremy puts on this, uh, on the family, on the legacies of both of these families through photos, through memories. Just what it means to be picking people off, because when you shoot somebody and take revenge, you know, you're wiping their whole future away. And that means their past, you know, family photos are the only thing left, this happy memory, uh, this tangible way of remembering them. And, and Buzz I, McAllister. And Buzz McAllister. Buzz is McAllister, <laughs> uh, Devin Rattray, uh, who played Buzz McAllister. He was in Nebraska was, last year. Was in Nebraska. He shows up here uh, again and sort of uh, delivers – I think his performance really typifies why this movie works so well because um, I think the character has all the potential for being a cartoon and I think in lesser hands uh, would have very quickly become one. But there's such a sort of – there's such a detectable humanity in his performance and, and a great sense of levity. I mean the movie's very funny. No, the movie's very funny. Way. That's why I brought up the Salons comparison, not so yeah. much in the filmmaking aspect but of the tone, just that I'm laughing when he – you know, there's a sequence where Dwight uh, has been shot in the leg with an arrow and he has to go to the drugstore to find things to mend himself up. And the way that um, Jeremy Salonier – films that just like with the inserts and with this tone and just all these normal people wondering what the hell is going on why is this guy bleeding i don't know it's just a really well choreographed scene to kind of maximize the comedy in this grim moment and the the retray character i mean he he is an ally to dwight he helps him but he also is a bit skeptical a bit reluctant to do so and i think that like he is a beacon for the audience. And he's this guy who is this sort of boisterous Southern guy who is, uh, runs guns and has giant sniper rifles. And he is sort of our window into this story, our reference point. Um, and I think that it, it 
sets a, a really uh, it puts you sort of on on edge and this is sort of off kilter way of going through the rest of the movie that works really really well but i think this is one a movie that has such a a unified sense of purpose and um never really missteps uh and i think it's rare to see from people who have you know 30 features to their their credit let alone one um and I, yeah, I mean, I recommend this as, as highly as anything we've talked about this year. I think it's definitely – and it's, I would definitely see it in a theater if you could. I mean, I, it's uh, it's something that's said very often about these better movies that premiere on VOD that it's worth seeing in a theater. But there's such a suffocating atmosphere to this movie. I mean, you get so swept up in Dwight's uh, revenge saga that it's really it, – I think I would really lose something if uh, you weren't seeing it in a the theater. Uh, so Blue Ruin is out on VOD today and in theaters. So you have the option. But David says go see it in theaters. I do too. That Man, the anamorphic photography. Because uh, Selene did the cinematography as well. He shot his own movie. And it's it looks gorgeous. And I just think every frame is so well constructed and then pieced together so well. Uh, it, this is a very simple movie. It's similar to Locke in that way. It's really kind of boiling down what this drama could be in a, in a larger scale production. And I'm happy to see something so simple and so contained and so understanding of its uh, macro and micro. So, Blue Ruin. See it? See it. Swagger Blue Ruin is how I get by. Can't think of a shorter way to go and get high. Couple of swigs and I believe my own lies. Swagger Blue Ruin is how I get by. Man, there's so many movies coming out that we're not talking about. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, are you gonna see? Are you gonna see Brick Mansions this weekend? David? Fuck no. <laughs> How about the other woman with Cameron Diaz and Leslie I'd, Mann? I'd sooner see that than Brick Mansions, but alas. What about the Quiet Ones? All these movies yeah, that we're not yeah. talking about on the podcast this no. week are coming out. <laughs> no. And I've seen all of them, and I can't recommend any of them. Which is no, the you saddest. saw the other woman? I did see the other woman. I, I I am kind of. And this is for everyone on the podcast to respond. Do we laugh at, like, defecation anymore? I mean, when I was a kid, that Dumb and Dumber scene where Jeff Daniels takes X-Lax and, like, tries to contain himself and can't just spews and we just hear these disgusting noises, that was really funny. And maybe that's because I hadn't seen it before or it hadn't been done before. It was just so gross and Daniels plays it so well that it works. But, like, this exact scene is emulated in The Other Woman. Um, with Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. And I'm like, why? This is not something I need to see. I'm not laughing at it. Why is uh, shitting wildly not well, we funny anymore? We definitely crossed a Rubicon with, uh, <laughs> what was it, the, the change-up? What was the one where... Oh, yeah, the change-up is where the, the baby, the like, shits shit. on, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on mean, Jason that, Bateman's face. <laughs> oh, my God. That, you know, that, that's, uh, I think... You know, poop is immortal. It's one of those things that will always, I think it's just like in a in a primitive physical way will always be funny. But so wait, uh, do you agree that the Dumb and Dumber scene is funny? Do you recall this? That's hysterical. Okay, good. Uh, but but uh, yeah, I don't know why these know, other ones do not work. Like like all poop, it needs to be deployed effectively and in the right <laughs> places. And uh, 
uh, I think it's grossly, no pun, of course, intended, misused in very many lazy movies. And I think it's also a very helpful barometer for what kind of experience the movie is going to deliver. Because I think if you see a movie like The Other Woman, which I have not seen, but Patches has, and it has a lazy, hackneyed, unfunny poop sequence, you can probably rest assured that the rest of the movie follows suit. Yeah, there's nothing really setting up for that moment. And by the time you get there, 90 minutes into the movie, when they're finally torturing this guy and he takes X-Lax and shits himself, I um, I don't need that. I don't need that in my life. Although I should have seen it coming because early in the film, uh, they cut to a dog and he just poops on the floor. Foreshadowing. You yeah. got to learn how to read a movie. Oh, patches. my God. I, uh, these metaphors. I need them to hit them. Hit me over the head like Locke. That's what, <laughs> Why couldn't the other woman be like that? Uh, anyway, um, so other woman, no. Brick Mansions, uh, Riza actually quotes Wu-Tang in the movie as a line of dialogue. Luke Bassan, you are not funny. Stop it. Stop this. And the quiet ones, yikes. Uh, Jared Harris, what? Did, I don't watch Mad Men. Is there a reason he's not on Mad Men anymore? Probably a good one. Uh, is that a spoiler? Yes, That's a serious spoiler. He is not on Mad Men anymore. It's a spoiler as to why. It was like two years or three years ago, but I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to suddenly ruin it. I haven't watched Mad it yet. So. It would be a spoiler yeah. to me. So thank you for not spoiling that. But yeah, Jesus. Let's just say he, he was on Mad Men. Okay. He needs to go back to Mad Men. That's probably not possible. Don't spoil it. No spoilers. Um, this week's lightning round question was uh, in honor of the other woman. Um, what is your favorite on-screen marital infidelity? Which is a really weird question to ask. I'm sure people were uncomfortable with it. Um, but a few of you answered. So why don't we pick our favorites? David? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with uh, with Jerry Davey at HorrorGeek333 who says, Deborah Messing and Hank Azaria and along came Polly because you screwed the scoob instructor on our honeymoon. But really, I will usually always pick Anything to do with the long came Polly, especially in the wake of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's untimely death, because uh, that has one of his greatest performances. And uh, wow. the immortal <clears throat> scene towards the end, white chocolate. Reassessment culture coming. No, I've, I was there on day one. <laughs> Day, I always saw that movie on opening fucking Why did you? Why did you see it? What made you go see a Log Cape Polly on opening day? What's it wrong di- with it? It was a different time in my life. Yeah. But the uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in that otherwise mediocre movie has really stood the test of time. Uh, I'm going to go with at Duncan Houst, who said, uh, while giving nothing away, and I, I will not either, the ending scene of Bastards. Uh, as horrifying as it is, there's something gloriously sadistic about that. Um, I love that movie. I don't. Did that movie come out? Yeah, it had a, came out in October last year. This is year. Claire Denise Bastards, which involves some serious corn. It's on Netflix right now, Netflix Instant. Oh, well, I will not get into it here. I will not spoil it, but immediately go to Netflix. I really enjoyed that movie. It is quite unsettling. Um, And that about wraps things up for this week's Fighting in the War Room review segment. Thanks, everybody, for listening to David and I yammer on about two fantastic films that you should probably go out and see this weekend instead of The Quiet Ones. Or maybe just watch Jared Harris's Mad Men episodes. I don't know what you're going to do this weekend. But thanks for tuning in. Uh, Why don't we tell the people where to find us on the internet? David? Uh, I am David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at... Criterion Corner, and uh, these days most of my writing appears on The Dissolve and The AV Club. And I'm Matt Patches. I write on the internet as well. Where did I, I just wrote about Locke? I interviewed Tom Hardy. 
who, uh, at Grantland. He has the craziest uh, e-cigarette I've ever seen in my entire life. It was like, it was like, <laughs> I, I can't even. It was long and black. It was just so cool. Vaping is cool again. It was like Audrey Hepburn's cigarettes. That's what it's like. Um, anyway, I did that on Grantland. I write all over the place. I put it on mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, and that wraps things up. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah.